Hey, what's up everybody and welcome back to That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host Michael and this episode is Q&A number 127. Before we get into today's question, big thanks to our sponsors. First, we have Zen8 uh, that you can find on zen8swimtrainer.com. The swim bench helps time crunched athletes get more consistency in their swim training. Uh, it's a simple inflatable bench that has engineered instability to teach you to activate your core. And it allows you to swim in a horizontal position to be specific to swimming as opposed to normal traditional stretch cord exercises where you would be standing up and putting a lot of strain through your hamstrings and posterior chain. Uh, with the swim bench that you can inflate and deflate to store very in a very small amount of space you are able to get in a short but effective workout if you don't have time to go to the pool for example or when pools are closed or even if you can go to the pool and you have time to get in uh, two or three sessions per week adding a few extra sessions on the swim bench can give you a little bit more bang for buck with your swimming and get you to improve your swimming slightly more than you would otherwise you can get 20% off your order on with the promo code that you can get on zen8swimtrainer.com forward slash tts and thank you to roca that you can find on roca.com Roka are the world-leading manufacturers of wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, and high-performance eyewear and prescription glasses and sunglasses. Uh, I want to do a little product highlight today, and uh, let's talk about the Gen 2 Elite Aero Trisuit. This is a trisuit that uh, is, as with all Roka's products, based on a really fantastic R&D work, a lot of testing, including wind tunnel testing. Uh, it balances aerodynamics, comfort, and function in a fantastic way. And it is also very, very durable. I've used mine through countless races, and uh, it's been going in the washing machine and all of that. Uh, so I can attest to the fact that this is a suit that will last you, and it will keep performing well for many, many races. Just like the Roka wetsuits, it has the patented arms up technology that allows you full shoulder mobility during the swim element of your triathlon. You can get 20% off the Gen 2 Elite Air Trisuit or any Roka product with the promo code that you can get on roka.com forward slash TTS. Now let's get to today's question, which is from Lowell in the United States in North Carolina, who asks... Hi, Michael. In episode number 253, you discussed the merits of many gadgets, including those that measure fatigue. You mentioned that a reasonable test of fatigue is to perform a 20-second max effort during or after a bike warm-up. Intuitively, this makes sense, and maybe I'm overthinking this, but do you know of any evidence-based studies to suggest a 20-second max efforts correlates to other fatigue measures, not only on the bike, but on running too? Also, does a single 20-second max effort negatively impact the rest of my workout? I would like to think that the training stress balance model is a sufficient predictor of fatigue, but it's hard to quantify the physiological effects of the different tasks I have to do outside of training. Calculating training stress score for shoeing horses is not easy, for example. This is why I'm attracted to the simplicity of a 20-second max effort test. I suppose heart rate variability, HRV, is another option, but that means I have to buy more gadgets, which is something I'd rather not do unless the increased accuracy of the gadgets is worth the money spent. Basically, what I'm asking is, what can we really learn about our physiological state from a 20-second max effort? Thanks in advance for your thoughtful reply. By the way, I love your podcast and appreciate what you bring to the world of endurance sports. 
All right, thank you, Lowell, for your question. Uh, I'll structure my answer here in a way that uh, gives uh, a more complete picture of why a sprint test like a 20-second max effort is a good assessment of fatigue. So I will cover some parts that you didn't directly ask in your question. Basically, we'll start by covering different fatigue mechanisms at play and uh, briefly discuss, for some of them at least, what is or isn't known about the recovery time courses. We'll then discuss a couple of ways of measuring fatigue, uh, including the research methods used, but then also uh, the ones you uh, refer to in your question, like HRV, uh, the 20-second sprint, and also the training stress balance model. And uh, finally, I'll explain why, uh, what to do with a sprint test when it is good, and uh, but also the caveats of it and the limitations of this kind of assessment. Uh, but before going into that, uh, I would like to give a high-level summary, uh, kind of a too long, didn't read, uh, Cliff Notes version of this episode. Uh, so first, for the purpose of this episode, we define fatigue as a decrement in muscular performance or function. So fatigue here is not about feeling tired, but actually not being able to generate your normal power or speed. In this context, we can split fatigue into a few different categories. And the main fatigue components that we as endurance athletes deal with can be categorized as uh, neuromuscular fatigue, which can further be categorized as either central neuromuscular or peripheral neuromuscular fatigue. Uh, But then we also have mental fatigue is uh, in a different category to that. In addition or related to these, uh, we could mention a few aspects that, uh, well, potentially could be fall under the aforementioned categories, like substrate and in particular muscle glycogen depletion that could potentially fall under uh, peripheral neuromuscular fatigue. But it could also, it's so important that uh, I like to look at it separately as its own entity. Then we also have things like heat or hyperthermia and muscle damage. Uh, to name a few that can either be seen as separate or they can also contribute to some extent to the ones, the categories uh, before. But basically we'll focus on uh, central and peripheral neuromuscular fatigue and muscle glycogen depletion. Those are the most important ones. There is plenty of evidence showing that sprint performance is impacted by uh, these types of fatigue. Uh, So yeah, all of the ones mentioned above. And the way I have talked about using a sprint test is not as something that uh, as an athlete you do and then you use that in the moment to take action on during the training, but rather it is then there as uh, quantitative data that a coach or a self-coach athlete can can use in their post-workout analysis to to get a a quantitative uh, complement to your qualitative feeling of uh, of your perceived fatigue essentially so for example uh, a practical example of how to use it would be to warm up for 15 minutes on the bike and then do a 20 second all-out effort and uh, that one sprint won't tell you much really but it's when you do it fairly regularly then it can tell you quite a bit for example if uh, your your athlete you or your athlete normally produces a peak power of 900 watts and an average of uh, 700 watts for the 20 seconds but today they only did 800 watts for peak power and 600 watts for the average so basically a 100 watt difference compared to the norm then you could uh, maybe make an inference that they are carrying fatigue of some form 
that's not necessarily a bad thing. It could be a controlled level of fatigue, so you don't always have to take action on this information. That is important. But the point is you have some information about it at least, and you can take an informed decision of what you want to do. The thing this test cannot tell you is where this reduced performance, this fatigue comes from. Is it from low muscle glycogen content? Or is it perhaps from neuromuscular fatigue in terms of more central uh, aspects? If you do see a lot of fatigue, so a large decrease in power, and you do want to address this, then basically you have two things you can do. So uh, first you can, uh, or not necessarily in one or the other order, but one thing you can do is to tell the athlete or you can uh, tell yourself to focus on getting in a good amount of uh, food and carbohydrate in particular over the next 24 to 48 hours to replenish muscle glycogen. And the second one is you could take a few uh, low volume training days and low training loads, so low volume and low intensity to recover from central fatigue, which for endurance athletes is often a consequence of, uh, of the total training load and volume plays a big part there, uh, at least if you're doing more training than you're normally used to doing. But again, the fatigue that you see might often be totally expected and accepted and acceptable. So measuring, measuring fatigue isn't the difficult part here, really. It is knowing what to do about it and when, when to do something about it and when not to do something about it. That is really the, the trick question here. But let's uh, back up to the start and discuss uh, some of these different models of fatigue, the most important ones for the purpose of this episode. And first we have neuromuscular fatigue and this can be split into central and peripheral fatigue uh, basically again neuromuscular fatigue means a decrement in performance or function of your muscles that is why we can measure it with a simple power output test how much power can you produce over five seconds 10 seconds 20 seconds whatever you want uh, so the central and peripheral fatigue uh, definition or division comes from where in the motor pathway does this fatigue occurs relative to the neuromuscular junctions where the the motor neuron uh, has its synapse so it's kind of attachment point or connection point to the muscle fiber and if this uh, yeah, if, if the mechanism behind the fatigue is on the side of the muscle fiber or in the synapse itself then it's called a peripheral fatigue but if it's on the side of the motor neuron or in the central nervous system uh, then it is central fatigue there's a good review article that I'll link to in the episode description that is called Recovery of Central and Periphery, Peripheral Neuromuscular Fatigue After Exercise. And figure two in that paper shows uh, many of the factors or mechanisms behind both central and peripheral fatigue. Some examples here include uh, changes in neural drive or neuromodulators such as serotonin or uh, changes in synaptic efficacy when we're talking about central fatigue. Uh, those three are all examples of that. And for peripheral fatigue, uh, we have examples like uh, accumulation of uh, metabolites such as uh, calcium, and changes in the muscle contraction machinery, uh, for example, reduced calcium release and sensitivity in the sarcoplasmic reticulum. The time course of these two types of fatigue depends a lot on the intensity and the duration of exercise, as you would imagine. Uh, from It can last from tens of seconds to many, many hours. Uh, check out table one in that paper mentioned uh, for a summary. Central fatigue seems to be 
dominating uh, in terms of how what part of fatigue is central versus what part is peripheral when recovering from longer duration lower intensity exercise and vice versa when recovering from shorter duration higher intensity exercise uh, then peripheral fatigue seems to be more dominant so let's move on to low muscle glycogen uh, as mentioned before uh, probably researchers might argue and uh, they're probably right <laughs> i'm not an expert in this by any means but muscle glycogen could uh, is, is probably a factor within peripheral fatigue itself but it's also on the other hand it's such an important one in particular for endurance athletes that i think it makes sense to treat it as its own entity and not leave it under another umbrella uh, so uh, so low muscle glycogen is a really important fatigue or mechanism behind fatigue Hyperfermia is an example of a factor that would impact the central neuromuscular function because of a reduction in in neural drive. So basically what neural drive means is that the central nervous system cannot generate as strong a signal uh, for the muscles to contract anymore. So when the when the signal generated is is not as strong, then you get fewer muscle fi- fibers to contract and then the the contraction of the entire muscle or muscle group is uh, not as strong as if you have a stronger signal from the nervous system in the first place and get more muscle fibers to contract. Uh, And if you're interested in more details, episode 257, an interview with Mark Burnley, uh, is one where we covered a lot of ground on different topics, but one topic that we discussed was uh, discussing these fatigue models in a bit more details, so do check that out if you're interested. And uh, finally, mental fatigue. Uh, I also have a reference here. This is uh, episode number 11, I believe, with Samuele Marcora. He talks in depth about mental fatigue and how the fact that mental fatigue increases perception of effort then in turn reduces endurance performance. I'm not sure off the top of my head if it does this independently of neuromuscular fatigue, but uh, I do think that it does. So, so I think that mental fatigue is uh, entirely separate from neuromuscular fatigue. Now let's discuss how you can measure these different types of fatigue. And uh, first, muscle glycogen is uh, pretty, I mean, it's pretty straightforward, but not easy. Uh, you need to do a muscle biopsy to measure it. So it's not something we have access to really. Mental fatigue is usually measured with uh, with various cognitive or neuropsychological tests. Uh, quite often these tests try to measure your inhibitory control. So an example would be a Stroop task. And this might consist of uh, your having a screen in front of you where you see words uh, appearing and they are they have fonts of various colors and the words might be colors themselves. So for example, you can have the word red appear in a blue font. And then basically what you have to do is answer the question as quickly as possible. What is the font color of the word? And because the word itself is red, but the font color is blue, inhibitor control is basically about inhibiting as quickly as possible the um, the, uh, the reflex that you might have to say that it was one color and I've already forgotten which one was which. The word was red and the color was blue. Um, either way, yeah, you should inhibit your reflex of trying to say red when the answer would be blue so so that is an example of measuring mental uh, mental fatigue and it's very well established that that type of task can accurately measure mental fatigue when you're more mentally fatigued then you will do worse on that kind of test um, then neuromuscular fatigue so the way this is measured again coming back to the definition of neuromuscular fatigue 
it is a reduction in the ability of the muscles uh, to uh, to contract. So how this is measured is with uh, with a maximum voluntary contraction, and this can be done uh, in various machines. For example, a knee extension machine, but with uh, with high grade measurement equipment, so that you can very specifically measure how many newtons your contraction or knee extension movement, for example, was. And um, in research, for example, if you want to investigate how much does a Wingate test or a 30 second all out effort impact fatigue or how much fatigue does it cause, you would just measure that maximum voluntary contraction in, for example, the knee extension machine, then get on the bike uh, and uh, do that maximum sprint and then immediately jump off and do that maximum voluntary contraction test again and see how much uh, less force did you produce or did it not change at all, then you're not fatigued. Uh, but uh, just measuring the maximum voluntary contraction, the, the MVC, uh, that doesn't uh, tell us how much of the reduction or the, how much of the fatigue is central and how much is peripheral, because you don't know if the muscle cell itself is capable of producing the force. But the problem is that the central nervous system, the voluntary activation from the central nervous system is reduced, so the signal strength is reduced or things to, of that nature. Uh, that might be the issue and so then central fatigue is behind it or maybe the central nervous system is completely fine and working at 100% but the limitations are in the muscle itself perhaps related to uh, to metabolite buildup or calcium release or or so on or a combination of both. So to assess that what is done in research is to use various stimulation techniques. For example uh, you can electrically stimulate the nerve leading to the muscle of interest and uh, see if that way the muscle can reach full contraction strength again. So instead of you having to, your brain having to tell your muscle to press that knee extension extension machine as hard as you can, uh, it is actually an electrical sig- signal or stimulation signal from from a device that does that. And then you can measure well how much force did your muscle actually produce when when it was stimulated kind of synthetically in in that sense and the central nervous system is bypassed Uh, then on the other hand uh, you can also stimulate the brain and the central nervous system usually with uh, transcranial magnetic stimulation and then measure the electric signal response in a muscle of interest uh, with uh, emg so basically measuring the electric signal of the muscle uh, and that way you can find, for example, that, okay, before you did a, an intervention, before you got on the bike and did that sprint test, uh, the, a particular strength of induced stimulus from the transcranial magnetic stimulation device resulted in an EMG that had this particular amplitude. But then after uh, the intervention and uh, re-measuring that same thing, the same strength of stimulus resulted in a lower amplitude and uh, of uh, of muscle signal. So, so that would indicate that there is a level of central fatigue going on there. So with these types of techniques, these are highly simplified explanations of what's, uh, what the researchers are doing. So in summary, these types of techniques are used for assessing how much fatigue exists and, and where does it come from? Is it central, is it peripheral, or is it a mixture of both in research studies? So that is the gold standard for really figuring out what's going on fatigue-wise with, with neuromuscular fatigue. Now, what about the sprint test? 
Well, we know from plenty of studies that low muscle glycogen content will reduce sprint performance as it will endurance performance. And also that neuromuscular fatigue will reduce sprint performance, whether it's central or peripheral. Uh, but by just doing a sprint and measuring your power and comparing it to what you normally do, uh, if we see that you're fatigued, we cannot say what the fatigue mechanism is. Uh, but at least we have a good clue that something might be going on. And uh, then what we just need to do is to take a step back and think, well, have I been eating well? Uh, or have I been increasing my training load recently? Could that be a reason for fatigue? Or am I just generally do uh, a little bit more rest or reduced training load? So a sprint test is not going to tell you a whole lot of detail. You need to figure that out uh, together with your coach or as an athlete yourself, if you're self-coached. And uh, it can be a bit like a warning lamp on your dashboard or an indicator lamp. And when that lamp is lit, then uh, as a coach, you just ask the athlete how they're feeling and uh, can initiate a conversation around uh, around that and how they have been eating and so on. And uh, that's the way to use it. You can't draw any too far-fetched conclusions just right away from seeing that your sprint power is greatly reduced, but uh, but it's an indicator that maybe you need to ask yourself some questions. You also mentioned HRV for measuring recovery, and it is true, but uh, keep in mind that HRV, heart rate variability, measures the activity of the autonomic nervous system. So this is the part of the nervous system that we cannot control, like we can't control voluntarily. And uh, regular listeners, listeners will know that uh, I do like HRV as a tool in the toolbox, uh, but it is very different compared to a sprint test because the sprint test measures your neuromuscular fatigue and uh, the autonomic nervous system is has nothing to do with that really. It is your somatic nervous system which uh, controls your, your voluntary movements that is involved there. Of course, if your autonomic nervous system is in a really bad state, then perhaps you've, because you've been training way beyond your capacity or for other reasons, uh, maybe working 60 hour weeks uh, and whatnot, uh, then if that happens, your autonomic nervous system is tanked, then chances are that you're also going to experience some sort of neuromuscular fatigue. Uh, that's uh, absolutely possible, but uh, it's definitely not a, a causal relationship. Uh, it's uh, more of some a correlation that doesn't necessarily have a, a causality to it. Uh, so, so that's my two cents on HRV. Uh, but uh, I do want to correct you on something there. You don't have to get any new devices to measure it. You can use it accurately through your cell phone uh, with an app. Uh, for example, HRV for training is the one I use and I really like it. And it's a one-time fee of less than 10 euros. So that's not really uh, a big investment uh, by, by any means. But uh, but as I said, HRV is not. Uh, it, it's a different recovery measurement tool. It's uh, not going to measure neuromuscular recovery. Finally, you mentioned that you'd like to think that uh, training stress balance is a sufficient predictor of fatigue. A quick backup and definition for listeners that are not sure what that is: uh, in the uh, Bannister model, which Training Peaks uses in its software, among other platforms, you have. Training stress score is a combination of volume and intensity. So each workout generates you a certain training stress score based on those two. Then on you can 
calculate a chronic training load based on the last six weeks of training and the training stress score from the last six weeks and an acute training load which is based on the training stress score from the last seven days of training and uh, the training stress balance is uh, in training peaks it's the difference between the chronic and the acute training load so if your acute training load is really high you've been training a lot more in the last seven days than you have been averaging over the last six weeks then your training stress balance is going to be negative and just to clarify uh, this is not something that training peaks came up with banister came up with it back in the 80s i believe as a theoretical concept which is a good good idea and good a good concept but uh, it hasn't really been validated to do all the things that people claim that it can do so i think we really have to the sooner we get away from the notion that uh, that the training stress balance or chronic training load or this this and that training stress score are great measures of whatever adaptation recovery uh, fitness the better because it's not like none of that has been validated really so the way i described uh, the definitions of uh, tsb how it basically it stems to uh, it stems from your volume and intensity so those are both uh, kind of load measures or they they form a load measure inputs of your training or things that you have been doing but it doesn't tell you anything about your response and uh, the response load relationship is very individual and depends on context and depends on history and so on uh, that is a lot of what coaching is about to find a good to find the right response load relationships for each athlete and uh, but there there is no one formula and there is no single load response relationship that holds true across many different or across all athletes uh, so uh, so to think that we can uh, use tsb training stress balance to predict fatigue is uh, that it just doesn't work like that it is going to be very individual the same way that we cannot predict performance from uh, from training stress score related metrics either uh, a couple of specific reasons that tsb is not a good model of fatigue uh, again i mentioned it's a theoretical model it hasn't been validated to be a predictor of fatigue in research uh, second it probably underestimates the training stress of volume compared to intensity or in other words it overemphasizes intensity and this is particularly important when it comes to central fatigue which really seems to stem largely from duration of training and volume uh, thirdly you can create the same training stress balance in a number of different ways first you could go the all intensity route do only short workouts but with all intensity and then you could go all low intensity high volume and you could do everything in between and you could arrive at the same tsb the fatigue response to those, dif those different models is going to be markedly different uh, overall but also in that the different systems of fatigue that we just discussed might be uh, impacted differently for example with a very intense approach you will probably tank your your muscle glycogen and uh, you'll also have a greater impact on your peripheral fatigue compared to an all volume all low intensity approach but on the other hand the volume approach might uh, really cause a lot more central fatigue than the intensity approach and which one will cause more mental fatigue uh, i'd say that that's probably highly dependent on the individual so tsb is a very poor predictor of fatigue well, not even a predictor and not really something that i would recommend having in your toolbox for this so let's finish off with a few tips about using the sprint test and answering some of the questions you had about that so first of all 
I don't think the sprint test has to be 20 seconds. That's just what I have been using. Perhaps 10 seconds would be just as good. And uh, so, yeah, up to you to choose that. To answer whether it negatively impacts your the rest of your workout, I'd say that for 95% of endurance athletes, it doesn't. But if you are somebody who has a lot of raw speed, power, and explosivity, maybe you can produce 1,500 to 2,000 watts as your peak power and you have a massive uh, anaerobic capacity, then the answer is maybe it could, actually. Uh, I would be careful with giving out sprints to this type of athlete before a main set because yeah you might just uh, have an athlete that can produce such high lactate in such a short amount of time and then they would have to soft pedal for 20 minutes just to get that lactate back to baseline before starting their main set but this is definitely the the very uh, rare exception rather than the rule when it comes to endurance athletes for most of us a sprint like this will only serve as a good part of the warm-up before uh, before a main set for example and then I would say that as a coach, I've only used this uh, on the bike because it's safe and it's easily and accurately quantifiable. Uh, as an athlete, I do tend to do some 25 meter sprints in the pool before my main swimming sets. And if I time myself for time myself for those sprints, then that can also give me some quantitative information along the same lines. But I don't use that as a coach unless I have actually been on the deck myself to time the athlete, which most of the times I'm not. So, so yeah, I mostly use the uh, the bike sprint test. On the run, the reason that I'm not prescribing is is that well, first of all, uh, I wouldn't want to risk getting a muscle strain or something by doing actual all-out sprinting necessarily, or uh, it doesn't feel like it's worth the risk in that uh, because the yeah the benefit of it isn't much greater necessarily than what the athlete can just tell you about how they feel. So so it's not yeah it's not not necessarily something that I deem as super important on the run. Uh, but also unless you're on the track to do it uh, you're just not going to get accurate timing you're not going to tell that okay this was exactly 100 meters or 80 meters or 60 meters and uh, with regard to running power i don't trust the accuracy of that either for very short duration efforts like that uh, to be able to discriminate between your normal sprint effort and your subnormal sprint effort and because we don't have train gauges it's all based on just the acceler accelerometer data and algorithms so yeah that, that's just not uh, uh an environment that is conducive for like really super accurate measurements that when you're measuring short and sharp power you want if you want to use that for maybe taking informed decisions uh so so it's cycling basically that I've been using it for and I recommend using it for, for those reasons. And uh, I don't think that it's something that everybody has to use or should use. It isn't necessarily any better than just being very in tune with yourself and your body, logging good comments in your training diary about how you felt after each workout. But on the other hand, it's nice to have both, have the qualitative feedback and a bit of quantitative confirmation of that every now and then. So this is not something that I would do before every workout necessarily. It's just more of a snapshot every once in a while to see uh, see how, how things are going. Basically sampling uh, every once in a while a quantitative, a quantitative sample of the athlete's state of fatigue. As with anything, we need to remember that uh, this sprint test does not exist in a vacuum with very clear-cut if-this-then-that rules. We need to consider context context is always king 
for example, uh, you cannot compare a sprint done indoors on the trainer to your normal power number outdoors. Uh, but it is something that we need to that that is just one very simple example but there are many other cases where we need to think about the context and we need to be okay with not always drawing conclusions from things it is of course normal human behavior to to want to draw conclusions from from everything but uh, but we need to learn to be comfortable that that's not always possible and the right thing to do is all quite often to not draw any conclusions but remain in the gray but at least then you don't take any stupid decisions uh, then finally if we do control for as many controllables as possible for example maybe you say that okay i'm only going to give this give this test to the athlete when when i know they're going to be on the indoor trainer anyway uh, we can use a sprint test like this as that yellow indicator light on our dashboard uh, so to do that though we need to understand normal variance in sprint performance so you need to have some uh, some degree of understanding of well how large of a decrease in nor sprint power are you looking for to actually turn the, the light on and i would say and this is just kind of shooting from the hip but uh, at least 10 percent below normal so if you normally do a 20 second sprint at 600 watts then you'd have to be at least below 540 watts for it to be of any significance in my opinion otherwise it's just i mean it could just be the way you happen to initiate the sprint a little bit less technically proficiently this time uh, so so yeah i would i would say at least 10% maybe even 15% but but if that happens if you see whatever your threshold is if you find that well okay today i performed worse than normal then the following are a few good questions to ask yourself or ask your athlete first am i actually feeling tired or feeling uh, that my performance is down second have i increased my training load recently and if i have might i be do a little reduction in training load to rest up third have i been maintaining a high training load relative to me for an extended duration and might i be do a little reduction to rest up and fourth have i been eating enough and how have i been getting enough carbohydrates and maybe the answer answers to these questions are that well i'm not tired my training load is fine and i'm just fine to crack on thank you i'm also eating like a horse so don't worry uh, that's absolutely fine if that is it the sprint test is not you know a pass and fail exercise it's just something to that can make you have that sort of little discussion with yourself and see assess your statement of fatigue a little bit deeper uh, and that's it it's one of several methods that you can use for that hrv being another even though it's a completely different one but it it would serve the same purpose in my book and both as an athlete and as a coach and that's it for today's q a uh, i want to have a little housekeeping here before we finish off and that is that uh, I'm considering mixing it up on Thursday, Thursdays a little bit with the podcast and not always doing Q&As. So uh, working name for different episodes that are not Q&As would be maybe TTS Thursday. So that leaves uh, something that leaves a lot of possibilities, basically not locking myself into any particular thing. It could be just talking through some um, some some training intervention or some studies or just some general advice around a specific topic not necessarily going super in-depth always the way that we tend to do on mondays with often with guests but sometimes in more solo episodes or scientific triathlon coaches episodes 
so so that's kind of a little bit that I've been thinking about. Uh, the Q and A's will definitely continue with them. Uh, I do want to see questions that are kind of applicable to a lot of people and not always super niche or super specific because I find that uh, those episodes are not simply as popular. People don't find them that interesting. So, so I would encourage people to keep sending in questions, but but also the questions that are really, really important are often the more basic questions and it doesn't have to be something that is a tiny tiny detail and more often than not actually those questions around very specific details or niche topics aren't the best or most important questions to ask when it comes to improving performance it's more about how to do the basic things even better so so i would encourage more questions uh like that to be sent in and uh and also if you have suggestions for things you want me to do on thursday episodes that are not q a in nature like topics you would want me to cover or general things you would want me to do then please send them in to me on email as well and as always my email is michael at scientific and michael is with a k i do have some ideas already from the survey that i ran earlier this year in january so that's great and but we'll just see where it takes us i'm still mulling this over a little bit and and thinking about uh how to what the different kinds of thursday episodes could be but essentially uh i don't have a large enough question database to warrant doing q a's necessarily every thursday and uh, yeah questions don't come in in that rate not not the kind of questions that would be really relevant for a large proportion of the audience anyway and those are really the kinds of questions that that i would prefer to answer all right, but that's it for today. If you're interested in coaching or training plans, as always, you know where to find them on scientifictriathlon.com. Go and check them out. And thank you to our sponsors, Zen8, that you can find on zen8swimtrainer.com. Use their swim bench to improve your technique, power, and stamina, even when you don't have time to go to the pool or when they are closed. And practice good core activation and high elbow catch, thanks to the engineering of the swim bench. Get 20% off your order with the promo code that you can get on senateumtrainer.com forward slash TTS. And thank you to Roka that you can find on roka.com. Check out their wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, high-performance eyewear, and prescription glasses and sunglasses and get 20% off your order with the promo code that you can get on roka.com forward slash TTS. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlon.